0: Welcome back. You've tuned in to the Primrose Chronicles podcast series, and this is episode 22 entitled My Own Scott Farkas Affair. I'm Marty Young, and I continue to be your host and narrator. Through the last 20 plus installments, I've sought to show you a distant time in my life, but one that's provided multiple experiences. Some in which I've been a spectator, others I was a full-on participant, others a victim, and still others the aggressor. In my defense, They all took place in 10 years that spanned two decades, the mid-1950s and early 1960s, and I was just a kid. Admittedly, that defense did not hold a lot of water with my folks, teachers, and activity leaders, so I guess you, my listeners, will be left to determine as these chapters unfold just what kind of kid I was and whether you would have let your kids run around with me in those days. I offer this disclaimer because if you're trying to ascertain and even judge the youth teen who is generally front and center week after week on his choices, actions, and reactions, this may be the most convoluted episode you'll listen to in this series. If you're familiar with the movie A Christmas Story, and I can't imagine how you would not be since it airs back to back to back to back, well, you get the picture, nonstop from Christmas Eve through Christmas Day, every December since 1997, first on TNT cable, and then in 2004 it moved over to TBS. Of course, it was with commercials, but still. Ralphie and his quest for an official Red Ryder carbine action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and a thing that tells time, it's become a staple of contemporary celebrations, and thus its secondary storylines as well, be it A major award, the changing of a flat tire, a pack of wild dogs, and yes, the terror of a playground bully with yellow eyes, it allows that celebrated film to make for a knowing insert in many conversations any time of the year. As such, in considering a tale drawing my audience back into my junior high years at Russo McClellan School 91, beyond what I shared about its faculty clear back in Episode 9, They also serve who only teach junior high. I considered several, but settled on one. It is nowhere near as cut and dried black and white in its protagonist and antagonist as Ralphie told us, and came to be called the Scott Farkas affair. But even as I saw the movie for the first time clear back in 1983, I related to so many incidents that he recounted. There were elements of Ralphie's revenge on Scott Farkas, though, that resonated with a specific event in my eighth grade year. A closer examination suggests that my actual encounter had little resemblance to the cinematic telling. But as I tell it here, I hope I'll come across as somewhat of a sympathetic Ralphie figure. Though the more I think about it, the more unlikely I believe that's going to happen. But I'm too long into the setup to not follow through, so here goes. It was indeed an event that certainly changed my status among classmates. I don't guess it could be or ever was considered a brave act. To consider it brave may require an understanding of how my mom and dad raised us kids. That rearing included a complete disdain for their offspring fighting. They felt that any kind of bullying or settling of scores by us kids through physical means should always result in disciplinary action, sometimes corporal, always with a period of exile to our bedroom. So, most all of my education in pugilism came watching infrequently the Friday night fights on the Gillette cavalcade of sports, and that was only when Grandpa Grant came over. I guess I did watch enough of them to vaguely recall the theme song, To look sharp and feel sharp too, choose a razor that was built for you. The roundhouse swings by my favorite TV cowboy stars and the slapstick punches thrown by the Three Stooges gave me the rest of my training. All that to say, I was not classically taught. My grappling skills came from a steady dose of watching studio wrestling bouts, again with my grandfather, but usually at his and Grandma Denti's house. There was Dick the Bruiser and Cowboy Bob Ellis and the Flying Frenchman Edward Carpentier, who were the in-ring personalities whose signature moves I learned, fully believing, with my Grandpa Grant, that the matches were all real. Any practice of either usually came at the expense of my younger siblings, with whom I was almost always victorious. The addition of the phrase almost always is because when they learned their strength in numbers— the element of surprise and ambush and how to take items from their toy box and convert them to weapons in their arsenal, they became a formidable squad of four. Junior high at Russo McClellan School Number 91 had its developed, yet fluid, pecking order when it came to victims and bullies and toadies and the transparent. As much as possible, I preferred the transparency of being smart but not too smart And by no means threatening, even though I was the tallest in the class. Remember, that was a position I held since I arrived in second grade at Public School 91. I learned early to use my humor to keep me out of tight spots with threatening classmates. Unfortunately, that same wit got me into plenty of tight spots with various teachers I mouthed off to. One area of a regular class day where I moved above transparency a bit was physical education. 7th and 8th grade was the first level that we had P.E. and not recess. That meant guys and girls in separate periods, one having P.E., the other health and safety, alternating the days, 3 and 2 one week, and the next week reversed. It also meant P.E. uniforms. In the case of the Max which was 91's mascot, we changed every day we had P.E. into gray t-shirts and red shorts that were stored in individual baskets in wire front lockers in the gymnasium auditorium behind the stage curtain, and then taken home on the last day of the week to be laundered and returned to keep the stage from smelling too badly. Whether in the gym, on the track, asphalt, or ball fields, the third thing introduced as a regular activity was formal competition. Soon it didn't matter the sport. It mattered whether you returned to the locker room and the rest of the school day a victor or the vanquished. And then, as now, I hated to lose. Worse, I hated the taunting from those winners. It sounded so much more clever coming from me when I won. It mattered because even in junior high, we had learned to talk smack. Now, before we go any further, you're probably asking after all this, when does this turn into a Scut-Farkas affair? Yes, it's Scut. S-C-U-T. Not Scott, as in F. Scott Fitzgerald. Not Scout, as in the catcher in the rye. Scut, as a short tail of a rabbit or a deer. Look it up. Yes, Scut. Yellow Eyes, Ralphie's Nemesis, Scut. With that introductory intro, I now can begin my monologue with one final acknowledgement. I have changed the names of the other characters in this telling like others, so as not to have any run-ins with libel and lawyers. Those of you who, from the neighborhood who think you've solved the true identity of the veiled persons, know now, I will disavow any accuracy of your guesses. So just sit back. And enjoy the listen, and stop trying to be Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple. Since fifth grade, Clancy Jenkins had been the one kid in the class she didn't mess with. Though among the smaller guys in my grade, he had a mean streak. And a dad who had taught him to box. I mean, really box. When other fights broke out on the playground at the recess or bike racks after school, it usually meant the punches to the stomach and the arms, and then a headlock and wrestling to the ground until one gained control over the other, resulting in the obligatory declaration, Uncle, whatever that meant. I did take time to investigate the origin of the phrase in fisticuffs, but to share it here would interfere with the flow of this riveting account. You're going to have to Google it. Yeah, go for it. Okay, Clancy Jenkins. A fight with Clancy Jenkins was different. First, most of those fights never happened. His reputation preceded him. And the encounters that did happen usually started and ended with a sincere mea culpa on the part of the participant who would otherwise be crushed, thrashed, smashed, and otherwise annihilated, and that would not be Clancy. When it did happen, Jenkins' first punches were to the head, directed to the nose and the mouth, and with the explosion of blood from lip or nostril or both, followed by an involuntary gush of water from the tacky's eyes, the fight was usually quickly over with Clancy walking away, again the conquering warrior. But over the years of upper elementary and the first year of seventh grade, the dust ups didn't usually happen on the schoolyard. More often it was over at Arsenal Park or at the paper station, far away in time and location from School 91. But these fights were always recounted secondhand in upper elementary and junior high, and as his reputation grew, Jenkins had fewer and fewer challengers. He ran the school to the degree that he even wanted to, by reputation, or fear, or threatening glances, or a combination of the above. Early in our 8th grade year, that changed. It was over a girl. Clancy was smitten with one of the junior high lovelies, Julie Weldon, and Julie was returning his advances with innocent flirtations. The trouble was, Julie was going steady with Shane Costner. They were the epitome of a junior high couple. Shane starred in all the school team sports, also played golf at Willowbrook Golf Course where he caddied, and Julie was a cheerleader, a good student, a class officer, responsible enough to be left in charge if the teacher left the room. But Julie was also friendly and pleasant to all regardless of social class, a trait that perhaps had initially been misconstrued by Clancy, but began to blossom over the summer in the middle of junior high. And now Jenkins had come into the picture. They had met during the summer at the bowling alley where she was on a junior league team and he played the pinball machines. And away from school, in basically neutral surroundings, they became close while Shane played golf and caddied. You might say Julie and Jenkins developed a kind of grease romance a la Danny and Sandy without all the singing and the choreography. Well, the summer was coming to a close. Rumor had it, Julie had actually begun to play one against the other, without the former knowing about the latter or vice versa, even working that to double the travels for her to the end of the summer state fair. Anyway eighth grade was a buzz when we came back with what shane might do and more fearfully what clancy might do to shane if he pushed the issue of whose girl julie was anyone else and shane would have promptly called them out and warned them to stay away from his girl and that would have been that and the question around the lunch tables as school resumed was what would shane do about clancy that was answered one day just after school was dismissed Word got around that Shane had told Clancy to meet him at the bike racks to settle things, and it became the pre-adolescent kind of a okay corral for that early fall afternoon. But the result was anticlimactic. Shane quickly showed himself to be trained in the sweet science, as sports writers and wannabes of the profession called boxing in print. Anyway, Costner began giving Jenkins a dose of his own medicine. He pummeled him about his face and ears, nose and lips, so as to inflict injury, and Clancy left. Mouth bloodied, eyes blackened, and dethroned. Shane Costner was now the subject of new lessons, but, but I know we're still not at my Scott Farkas affair. All of this was just the undercard. The main event is what followed. Fast forward to physical education later in the year. The game was kickball. Coach Pollock had formed teams for a week at a time, and we had a round-robin tournament for the week. Four teams pool play with the top two teams playing each other for a weekend of bragging rights. The P.E. period was winding down. My team was down two, needing three runs to win and not have to run laps on Monday. A whistle from the coach indicated two minutes. We were up to bat, a kick but had to score those three runs before his next whistle. Without being too melodramatic, we had two on, and I was up. A bouncer rolled to the plate by the pitcher, and I chose to strike it. My size 12 right foot encased in a black high-top gym shoe struck the red bounce ball just below center, and it took off. I had placed it between the two outfielders, and as the ball began to roll between them, I began to run. The two guys ahead of me scored, and I rounded third with the ball just now being thrown in. I approached home, and just as I crossed the plate, the whistle blew. We had won. We would not run laps on Monday. Except Coach Pollock saw it differently. I had not officially crossed the plate. Jordan Patterson, the guy ahead of me, had not touched the plate and he was out, and we were declared losers and unceremoniously told all of us to go get changed for music class. It was a long walk to the back steps that led through the door into the makeshift locker room. I was furious, a clear win stolen, and to make matters worse, The other team's captain was Shane Costner, and he was rubbing his stolen victory in my face. All the way across the playground, from the diamond in the middle of the cinder track, across the gravel, past the bikes waiting to take their owners out the side gate and throughout the district in just a couple of hours, he kept up the barrage of mocking and jeering. And in my mind, filling with rage, it begged the question, what was I going to do about it? all my fear of crossing mom and dad's disdain for fighting, all my fears of having my face bloody by the new king of the hill, all my hesitancy as to how my likely demise might affect not only the rest of this eighth grade year, but on into high school, all that was kicked to the curb by my fury at having lost unfairly and the taunts that cut so deep into my pre-adolescent psyche. It even continued as we changed into clothing suitable for the final period of the afternoon music. We left the gym, and as always, we stopped at the gang bathrooms to run water over our faces, wash our hands, and whatever. All the while, Shane continued to run his mouth over his tainted wind, even as he stooped over the sink. At that point, I walked over beside Costner, balled up my fist, and hit him with an uppercut that struck his face as his eyes were closed and I hit him hard. I then struck him several additional times in the arm and stomach as I had always been wont to do, until the star of the court, the diamond, and the lynx was crying, even as I departed the restroom and headed quickly to Mrs. Whopper's classroom. No, (laughs) not my proudest moment in retrospect. But I guess in some twisted way for a junior higher, it was a brave moment, considering all the fears that I had faced and acted upon in spite of their being in my mind. Oh, I guess you'd like to know the outcome. Sadly, in the warped world that was and probably still is junior high, it didn't seem to matter how I had felled Shane. I had delivered a beatdown and now entered the rarefied and completely unearned air of celebrity. I had dispatched the guy who thrashed Clancy Jenkins. In truth, that and a dime would get me a Green River at the Fountain at Steg's drugstore. It brought me no added notice by other 8th grade lovelies, and even a recall of the event as the year went forward paled as new escapades and new exploits By others, replace my unexpected notoriety around the lunch tables. Oh yeah, there was one more immediate consequence. During music class the next period, Mrs. Shoemate, the vice principal, entered the room with a red-faced, slightly teary-eyed Shane Costner in tow. I was called out of the class and taken with him down to the principal's office. Since I seldom went to Mr. Mitten's office for discipline, By the time we went down the stairs from the second floor junior high classroom to the administrative offices in the center of the first grade, I was as red-faced and teary-eyed as Shane, causing anyone who was unaware of my triumph wondering who had beaten down whom. We both sat outside the offices in the hall in wooden wraparound desks on opposite sides of the office entrance, as if in pillories in a 17th century Puritan settlement, gawked at and snickered about by the elementary kids on their way to recess. We couldn't even threaten them, since that's what got us there in the first place. Soon, we were summoned into Principal George F. Mitten's inner chamber. Now, I had been in there countless times as a lunchtime phone monitor, alternating the role with my neighborhood buddy, Bob Bossler, but that position of trust and responsibility held no benefit at this meeting. In addressing these charges, he was all business. Mr. Mitten heard both versions of our story, both of which placed me clearly in the wrong. He then dismissed Shane back to class, called my mother, and indicated that I would be suspended for three days. In addition to initial corporal punishment upon coming home, it also resulted in my being grounded for a month and my brother Dave taking over my evening paper route, both in delivery and profits. Now, Shane Costner eventually became a high school friend. Clancy Jenkins remained a nemesis, but not itching for a fight since I had a win under my belt over the guy that had cleaned his clock. He knew that I could be lethal with a sucker punch. One final footnote. I saw Shane again at our 50th high school reunion way back in 2015, and though he recalled many of our high school antics, he had no recollection of the thrashing he took in the school 91 restroom during 8th grade. At least that's what he said. But I remembered it vividly, if not accurately enough, to recount here. Another chapter in the growing saga of the Primrose Chronicles. A place I'll continue to return to, humming the tune of Jerry Wallace's Primrose Lane, even though you and I both know it was Primrose Avenue. In the future, pugilistic exploits will be diminished. In truth, you've probably have heard more. than there ain't no more. But there's still a treasure trove of memories, and I hope you'll be with me as I rummage around its contents. The Remnants of Primrose, or Primrose Avenue and Blessings. In case you haven't checked the Facebook page carefully, I've added a level of participation in the Primrose Chronicles project. It's an opportunity for many of you who have expressed your enjoyment and support for this weekly effort to move from merely being a fan of TPC to a patron of sorts. I'm rapidly realizing that to maintain any level of quality in producing these weekly episodes, as well as enlisting the help and direction of its future exposure, I must make a cash outlay for subscriptions and fees and equipment, etc. I've been encouraged to invite folks who appreciate the escape that Chronicles offer every week to help underwrite those costs. I do not intend to turn this into a paying service, but I have engaged the help of a platform support service called buymeacoffee.com. I won't take your time here to unpack the particulars, but just check out the Primrose Chronicles Facebook page post about buymeacoffee.com and see how for as little as $5 a month you could possibly assist and bless this effort. But enough of that for now. Send me a personal message or write me at Chronicles at gmail.com if you have questions about what they might mean to you. And in the words of Forrest Gum, that's all I'm going to say about that now. Just know that I truly do appreciate you listening in. You've had plenty of choices, and I'm grateful that one of those you've selected is being with me on this journey. And as I've said before, I'll say it again. Until next time, blessings.